0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist Church in Rocky Top. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening. We're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Acts today, and we're going to be in Acts 24. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, so we are fast drawing to a conclusion of really this epic story that God has taken us through, inspiring Luke to write these amazing words about the birth and the growth, growth of the early church. Some of you will remember this. In 1992, a film entitled A Few Good Men was released in theaters. The film follows the court-martial of two U.S. Marines that are charged with a crime against a fellow Marine at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base in Cuba. A very recognizable actor, Tom Cruise plays Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, and Demi Moore, another well-known actress, plays Lieutenant Commander Joanne Galloway. It's a classic courtroom drama, and it has to do with dealing with those who were dishonorably discharged from the Marines if they're found guilty of committing a crime, and the trial sort of unfolds with this tale of how institutionalism can blind even the bravest and can lead them to a code that sometimes, and tragically, can trump personal morality with grave implications. The film had a modest budget at the time of $40 million, but it went on to make nearly $300 million, and it was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Now, near the end of the movie, there's an iconic scene in which a senior military official played by Jack Nicholson is being questioned by Tom Cruise's character, who's a Jag, of a lower rank. Colonel Jessup says, again, who's played by Nicholson, I'll answer the question. Do you want answers? Lieutenant Caffey says, I think I'm entitled to them. Colonel Jessup yells again, you want answers? And Caffey says, I want the truth. Then the colonel says, you can't handle the truth. And that final statement has become one of the most recognized movie lines of all times. Most people love a good courtroom drama, and in today... Today's message in Acts 24 in the New Testament, we're going to find ourselves in one such judicial drama that unfolds between our beloved Apostle Paul, his accusers, and a man named Felix. This is Acts 24. We're going to actually cover the whole chapter. It's a short chapter, and we're going to break it down into three separate sections. This is the beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with the same elders and a spokesman one to Tertullus, to Tertullus, excuse me. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, "Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg your kindness to hear us briefly." For we have found this man, the Apostle Paul, a plague, who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all these things were so. To bring us up to speed, just in case you need a little bit of a refresher, in Acts 23, Paul continued his string of standing before legal groups presenting the gospel of Christ. He had been given the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make his case before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high council composed of Sadducees and Pharisees. And he ends up dividing the Sadducees and Pharisees over the subject of the resurrection, and he creates such a riot that he is removed by the Roman commanders. At the end of Acts 23, we read of a large entourage of 200 Roman soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen who were going to help transfer Paul all the way to Caesarea in the dark of the night. Paul was a high-priority target, and many of the Jewish leadership wanted him dead because he was creating such the ruckus. And so this man named Felix was governor of Caesarea. And this sort of brings us up to speed to what's happening here as we begin at Acts 24 and this examination of the case against Paul. It took five days for Ananias, you will recall that he was the high priest, and some of the elders of the Sanhedrin to come down to this area and arrive. And they brought with him a very skilled lawyer named Tertullus. This was a big case. This was a big deal. Perhaps you don't do this, but... I sometimes have a bad habit of imagining the ancient world in such a small way, kind of with these dusty desert backdrops, simple buildings and structures, a world that lacks the color and flair of our modern world. But this entourage, this court, these circumstances were anything but small and insignificant. Jesus had now brought Paul before a great ruler of the Roman Empire, and this ruler, and all around him, would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about Felix, Antonius Felix. He was the governor of this region where Paul had created such a brouhaha, and he was unique among Roman governors. He had started his life as a slave, Felix did, and he was the only Roman governor who had worked his way up from this unfortunate beginning to a high level of authority and influence, and he wielded tremendous power. However, Felix had not done this through honorable means. History records him as this cunning and ruthless individual who had used bribes, blackmail, and deception to attain his current rank and his current ability. There's an art to self-promotion, and Felix had it, but in a devious way. Some may do it through honorable and noble means with the intent of helping others around them through their actions. And some do it thinking about only one thing, and that thing is themselves and all the power that they can attain. And Felix, as you might imagine, fell into that latter and unfortunate category. So this lawyer, Tertullus, starts his case. He's looking at Felix, and he says, Felix, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made to this nation and everywhere and every place, we accept this with all gratitude. You know, he clearly was a clever lawyer, and he lays it on so thick here that you would need a snow shovel to clear the path after he was done. Tertullus was clearly attempting to gain the favor of Felix through flattery. But the reality of Felix's administration was anything but peaceful. It was anything but rosy. Felix had been violent to the Jews. He had ordered the massacre of thousands of Jews in some uprisings that had occurred in Caesarea. And he had confiscated their property property, and he had given it to wealthy Romans. He was indeed a very violent, even a barbaric man. But what were these charges that the Jews that Tertullus was bringing against Paul. Well, he begins, Tertullus does the prosecution, as Paul is standing there, not yet having an opportunity to speak. He says, we have found Paul to be a plague. Paul had become a problem. He then says that he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, not just a leader, but a ringleader, and that word carries the same sort of negative punch back then as it does now, implying that there was some type of illegal activity involved that is aggressive and unlawful and it's interesting that Tertullus here calls Paul a ringleader on of a sect of the Nazarenes, the Nazarenes. well why why point this out? So again, back then, followers of Christ by and large, were not collectively called Christians just yet. The name had been thrown around a couple of times, but that was not the mass application of believers in Christ. More often than not, they were referred to as followers of the way. And here they're just referenced as a sect of the Nazarenes. So Jesus, though born in Bethlehem, had made his home in the town of Nazareth. So really kind of an interesting side note, there's some historical confirmation here of information that the gospels record, but that's not the point of this particular section. Now Nazareth, to think about it, was not a well respected area. It had likely an undue and unfortunate reputation. I deal with this all the time when I tell people where I live. It's not that different that when you and I say that we're from Bryceville or Rocky Top, people who are unfamiliar with the area think that You spend your life kind of dodging bullets and are all the time having to fight off ruffians and thugs with a baseball bat. But when you actually live here, when you actually spend some time here, you find that there are many wonderful people and many wonderful things about this dear community in which we live. But we may even recall a conversation from the Gospels that Jesus had with his disciples or his disciples had about Nazareth. Jesus had entered the region of Galilee, and he had started calling some of his disciples, in this case, Philip, who goes and finds Nathanael. And Philip talks to Nathanael, and he says, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote. We have found Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael looks at him and says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Tertullus was playing a a nasty game here. He was trying to provoke these stigmas, these prejudices against Paul and the other followers of Christ by identifying Paul with the sect of the Nazarenes. And the only specific charge that's brought here is that Paul tried to profane the temple. But here's the problem with that. Tertullus doesn't offer any evidence for this charge. But, of course, the Jews and this coalition around him, there's this hearty agreement that have traveled with Tertullus with this case against Paul. And it's interesting that Tertullus closes his opening words with the words to Felix, telling him to examine Paul himself. So, you see, Tertullus is convinced that when Paul begins his testimony, he will say something that incriminates him and seals his fate. And so the lowly apostle, with chains on his wrists, approaches the governor and he gives his case. This is what he says down in beginning in verse 10. Paul approaches and he says, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And that's Paul's initial defense that he provides here. Now note the difference between Paul and Tertullus. It's odd to write and say their names together in the same sentence, Paul and Tertullus. Paul being such a man of integrity and purity and Tertullus being such a deviant And such a vile man. He says, Paul looks at Felix and he says, knowing for many years you have been a judge over this nation. Now this is almost kind of funny. There's already a rather stark contrast from the words of flattery and biscuit buttering that Tertullus had done. Paul doesn't lie and he doesn't puff up. The only nice thing that he has to say to Governor Felix is, well, you've been here for a few years. You see, to Paul, Felix was like that co-worker who stays for years and years and years and they read something in a book that they can quote that sounds really smart, but they have no practical skills and they have really limited capacity. You can't say they're smart. You can't say they work hard. You can't say that they have good ideas. But if you have to say something nice, at least you can say, well, they've been here a while. So he, Felix, had been a judge for a while. Paul was going to give him that. And then he goes on to say that he could cheerfully answer. Paul could stand there and cheerfully answer. Now, fairness was not a guarantee for Paul as he stood before Felix. Justice was not a guarantee for Paul as he stood before Felix. Yet Paul could still cheerfully present his case because he knew truth was on his side and God would be the one who would ultimately vindicate him. Paul goes on to say there's been no proof of these accusations, and it's only been 12 days. In other words, no one's died since these alleged events have happened. So there's plenty of eyewitnesses who could produce testimony to these false charges that have been brought, but they haven't brought one. And then Paul continues. He says, according to the way, which they call a sect. Tertullus called Christianity the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul called it the way So Paul sets the record straight here, saying that this wasn't a sect, this was the way, the way God had intended from the beginning as revealed in the entire Old Testament and now fulfilled in Christ. Not merely a belief system, but a way in which we live our lives. They understood that back then, the early Christians did. Even those who were opposed to Christ understood that it wasn't merely a set of laws That one followed, but it was a way of life. Paul goes on to say that he's on trial because there would be a resurrection of the dead. This was a shared belief between Paul and many of the Jews. It was believed by the devout Jews of the day, but as we learned last Sunday, not by the Sadducees. Paul's belief that there would be a resurrection was connected to the truth in the resurrection of Jesus. Not just something that Paul thought would happen, but he rested on the assurance because Jesus had been resurrected. And then Paul has a decisive shift in his defense. He says that there's going to be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul clearly believed in the resurrection, and he believed in it for the righteous and the unrighteous. Here is a side note, the idea of a Permanent soul sleep or annihilation for the unrighteous is not accurate according to New Testament teaching. We will all, all stand before Jesus Christ one day. And for those who have put their trust in him, it will be a glorious day. Paul then reminded Felix that there was no eyewitness testimony to prove the charges of his accusers. And because Paul was in the right, he consistently called the case back to the evidence. You know, as Christians, we should never be timid about or ashamed of the truth or the evidence. If we're truly following God, the truth and the evidence are our companions. They're not our accusers. After Paul presented his case, the only logical solution was, this guy's innocent. He's free. But remember, Felix was corrupt. Let's see what happens next. down in verse 22. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody and have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. Now this next part is interesting. After some days, and we believe that this was quite some time, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Felix understood something about Christianity. We read that he had a more accurate knowledge of the way, so he just puts Paul off and says that he'll speak to the Roman commander. What Felix did here was a cowardly response. He attempted to craft some middle ground here because Felix didn't want to make a decision. You see, Felix knew Paul was innocent, so he's not going to put him in prison in the dungeons of Rome, so to speak, but he also isn't going to let him go free. He didn't want to be associated with Christianity and to let Paul, and to have allowed Paul to go freely, would have made Felix look like he had made a decision, even in a small way about Jesus Christ. The information was there, the truth was there, but Felix avoided the decision. But then something interesting happens. Felix comes back with his wife, Drusilla, to listen to Paul. Paul's under house arrest. This goes on for two years total. And it seems that on slow days, Paul would provide some sort of entertainment for Felix. And you know, we actually know some things about Drusilla from other historical sources. This woman who is accompanying Felix here, Drusilla, was the sister of Herod Agrippa II. And she was known to be a beautiful woman. But at this time, she was around 18 to 19 years old. And what's more, she was Felix's third wife. So there was some blatant inappropriateness that was going on here. And Paul, as he's speaking with them, you know, he just gives a classic Baptist sermon. A three-point sermon, he talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix's response to this is intriguing. Felix was afraid. And what does he say? He says, go away from now. When it's convenient, I will call you back. You know, when I read that, to me, it's chilling. It's absolutely chilling to read. Felix rejected Christ through delay. Paul did keep coming back, but for Felix, it wasn't sincere. He wanted to be paid off with a bribe, and this kept happening for years until Felix is pushed out of office and replaced by someone named Festus. So what are a few timeless takeaways that we can have here? Well, one, the truth as Christians. For Christians, the truth is on our side. Paul knew this standing before Felix. Felix. And we need to know this as believers in Christ. Our whole world, our whole worldview depends on it. In the free marketplace of ideas, the truth ultimately, ultimately will have the final say. This doesn't mean that it's immediate. This does not mean that it does not come without pain, destruction, or consequence for lies and falsehood. But eventually, the truth will emerge triumphant. And as followers of Christ, we have the truth. Secondly, intent is prior to content, and for some people, persuasion is impossible. Now, I realize that's almost a word salad, so let me explain. Intent is prior to content, and for some people, persuasion is impossible. Frank Turek, a Christian apologist who is very well known on YouTube, in fact, I highly recommend you look him up, he does a great job. Frank Turek, he travels around speaking primarily on college campuses. And of course, he frequently encounters atheists, agnostics, and other unbelievers. And most of these people in their dialogue are reasonable enough, but some can be quite aggressive. But Mr. Turek often asks this question to those who are questioning him. He says, If I can prove Christianity is true, would you become a Christian? If I can prove that Christianity is true, would you become a Christian? You know, it's a reasonable enough question. If something is demonstrably true, Wouldn't you believe it? But oftentimes, and it's interesting, these people will say no. They'll say no. Now, I appreciate their honesty, but why would they do that? Because intent is prior to content. Sadly, tragically, there are many people in the world who will choose not to believe, not because they have irreconcilable questions, not because there isn't enough evidence, Not because there are contradictions in the belief, but because they simply don't want to. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord would mean that they would have to change their lifestyle, they would have to alter their morality, and they would have to submit to him. And because of pride, they will not do it. Felix had the truth, and he knew it, but pride kept him from doing the right thing. And finally, Paul mentioned righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness. How do we become righteous before a holy God? Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of God in every way, in all ways, and he died a righteous death on the cross in a righteous act of love in which all the shame, all the guilt, all the sin was put on Jesus And when we put our faith in him, the great exchange takes place. All the sin is placed on Jesus, and his righteousness is transferred to us. That's what Paul was talking about with Felix. Self-control. Felix had this 19-year-old trophy wife positioned next to him, so Paul decides to talk about self-control. Seems obvious. Paul was a fearless individual. Felix had a deep hole in his life, a chasm in his heart that could not be filled. It was known that he would get drunk every night. He went from wife to wife, from relationship to relationship, from brutal act to brutal act. Yet he was unfulfilled. And friends, I've seen this happen to so many in our world. First, it may start small, but it grows. People think, if I could just have that new cell phone, if I could just drive that car, if I could just be in that social group, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just marry that girl or that guy. If I could just have that house, if I could just have two kids, if my kids could just be good at sports, and then if I could just have a different wife, or if I could just have a different husband, constantly pursuing the next big thing to fill a void in their soul. All the while, Jesus says, I am here, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then finally, Paul said, the judgment to come, every one of us will have to stand before God. And friends, at that moment, if I point back to anything that I have done, anything that I have accomplished, I have been successful at, or I have done that is good, then I am doomed. But if I can point to Jesus and say, He is my righteousness, He is my Lord, He is my God, I can rest assured On these fantastic and extraordinary words from the Apostle Paul as he said to the Corinthians no human being might boast in the presence of God because of him you were in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord in closing out the thoughts from this morning now is the accepted time now is the day of salvation You know, it isn't easy for one to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. I'll admit that. Following Jesus isn't convenient because he confronts us with the reality of our condition. Felix wanted Paul to speak with him, and Paul freely spoke. Paul not only gave answers, Paul gave the truth. And Felix couldn't handle the truth. Now, why did God inspire Luke to pen this story? Wouldn't it have been grand? Wouldn't it have been great? if Felix at the close of Paul's many sermons to him would have gotten on his knees and confessed Jesus as Lord well of course it would have but that doesn't happen here God is showing us a lot but for today in this passage I believe the message is for us is to be bold in the face of opposition to speak the truth when it isn't popular and to understand we have the truth to share with the world Paul was taking the gospel to Rome he was standing before kings He was doing exactly what Jesus had called him to do. Pray with me if you would, friends. Heavenly Father, for many Christians in today's world, it may seem that we stand in similar places as the Apostle Paul did, although certainly he faced circumstances far more serious than what most of us will ever face. But it does seem as if truth is absent in so many parts of our society and so many parts of our world. And yet you remind us, that opposition should never stop us from speaking the truth of Christ into this world. Dear God, we know that you can tear down these barriers and knock down these walls and soften the hearts of people to be receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of your word. God, thank you for allowing us together as a church to learn from you, to worship you, and to be discipled. We pray that you will go before us as we go out now into the world to share your truth with all that we encounter in the way that we speak, in the way that we conduct ourselves, and in the way that we live every minute of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.